Chapter Fifteen, Part One of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Candace Tuttle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Macy Ward. Chapter Fifteen, Part One. From Battersea to Beaconsfield. 1909 to 1911. In 1909, with orthodoxy well behind him, and George Bernard Shaw just published, Gilbert and his wife left London for the small country town that was to be their home for the rest of their lives. It was an odd coincidence that they should leave Overstrand Mansions, Battersea, and come to Overroads, Beaconsfield, for they did not name their new home but found it ready christened. It will be remembered that in one of the letters during the engagement, Gilbert had suggested a country home. The reason for the choice of Beaconsfield he gives in the autobiography. After we were married, my wife and I lived for about a year in Kensington, the place of my childhood. But I think we both knew that it was not to be the real place of our abode. I remember that we strolled out one day, for a sort of second honeymoon, and went upon a journey into the void, a voyage deliberately objectless. I saw a passing omnibus labelled Hanwell, and feeling this to be an appropriate omen, we boarded it and left it somewhere at a stray station, which I entered and asked the man in the ticket office where the next train went to. He uttered the pedantic reply, "'Where do you want to go to?' And I uttered the profound and philosophic rejoinder, wherever the next train goes to. It seemed that it went to Slough, which may seem to be singular taste even in a train. However, we went to Slough, and from there set out walking with even less notion of where we were going. And in that fashion we passed through the large and quiet crossroads of a sort of village, and stayed at an inn called the White Hart. We asked the name of the place, and were told that it was called Beaconsfield. I mean, of course, that it was called Beaconsfield, and not Beaconsfield. And we said to each other, This is the sort of place where some day we will make our home. They both wanted a home. They both deeply desired a family. The wish is normal to both man and woman, normal in a happy marriage, and theirs was unusually happy. It was almost abnormally keen in both Francis and Gilbert. Few men have so greatly loved children. As a schoolboy, his letters are full of it. Making friends with Scottish children on the sands, with French children, by the medium of pictures. Later, he was writing in defense of baby worship, and welcoming with enthusiasm the arrival of his friends' children into the world. In the notebook, he had written, Sunlight in a child's hair. It is like the kiss of Christ upon all children. I blessed the child, and hoped the blessing would go with him, and never leave him, and turn first into a toy, and then into a game, and then into a new friend, and as he grew up, into friends, and then into a woman. Grass and Children Grass and children, there seems no end to them. But if there were but one blade of grass, men would see that it is fairer than lilies. 
and if we saw the first child, we should worship it as the God come on earth. Rounds I find that most round things are nice, particularly eternity and baby. Francis cared no less deeply, both for eternity and for babies, and for many years went on hoping for the family that would complete their lives. At last it was decided to have an operation to enable her to have children. Her doctor writes, I well remember an incident which occurred during her convalescence from that operation. I received a telephone call from the matron of the nursing home in which Mrs. Chesterton was staying, suggesting that I should come round and remonstrate with Mr. Chesterton. On my arrival, I found him sitting on the stairs, where he had been for two hours, greatly incommoding passers up and down, and deaf to all requests to move on. It appeared that he had written a sonnet to his wife, on her recovery from the operation, and was bringing it to give her. He was not, however, satisfied with the last line, but was determined to perfect it before entering her room to take tea with her. By the time they left London, she must, I think, have given up the hope she had so long cherished. Still, if there could not be children, there might be perhaps something of a home. In the conditions of their life, there was danger that any house of bricks and mortar should be rather a headquarters than a home, and it was lucky that he was able to feel she took home with her wherever they went. Your face that is a wandering home, a flying home for me. The years before them were to be filled with the vast activities that not only took Gilbert to London and all over England incessantly, but were to take him increasingly over Europe and America. Beaconsfield gave a degree of quiet that made it possible, when they were able to be at home, not to be swamped by engagements, and to lead a life of their own. Gilbert could go to London when he liked, but he need not always be on tap, so to say, for all the world. Frances could have a garden, and indulge her hungry appetite for all that was fruitful. G. K. later, under the title the homelessness of Jones, showed his love for a house rather than a flat, and they gave even to their first little house, Overroads, the stamp of a real home. For a man and his wife to leave London for the country might seem to be their own affair. Not so, however, with the Chestertons. After a lapse of over thirty years, I find the matter still a subject of furious controversy, and indeed passion. Francis, says one school of opinion, committed a crime against the public good by removing Gilbert from Fleet Street. No, says the other school, she had to move him, or he would have died of working too hard and drinking too much. The suggestion, which I believe to be a fact, that Gilbert himself wanted to move, is seldom entertained. There is in all this the legitimate feeling of distress among any group at losing its chief figure, its pride and joy. I lost Gilbert, Lucian Oldershaw once said, first when I introduced him to Belloc, next when he married Francis, and finally when he joined the Catholic Church. I rejoiced, though perhaps with a maternal sadness, at all these fulfillments. Cecil wanted his brother always on hand, 
Balak was already in the country, a far more remote country, but even he, coming up to London, mourned to my mother, "'She has taken my Chesterton from me.' Talking it over, however, after the lapse of years, he agreed that in all probability the move was a wise one. What may be called the smaller fry of Fleet Street are less reasonable. One cannot avoid the feeling that in all this masculine life, so sure of its manhood, there lingered something of the schwarmeray of the junior debating club, furiously desiring each to be first with Gilbert. And in his love of Fleet Street, he so identified himself with them all, that they felt he was one of them, and did not recognize the horizons wider than theirs that were opening before him. My husband and I are experts in changing residences, and we listened with the amusement of experts to the talk of theorists. For it was so constantly assumed that on one side of a choice is disaster, on the other perfection. Actually, perfection does not belong to this earthly state. If you go to Rome, as Gilbert himself once said, you sacrifice a rich, suggestive life at Wimbledon. Newman, writing of a far greater and more irrevocable choice, called his story loss and gain, but he had no doubt that the gain outweighed the loss. There were in Gilbert's adult life three other big decisions— decisions of the scale that altered its course. The first was his marriage. The second was his reception into the church. The third was his continued dedication to the paper that his brother and Belloc had founded. In deciding to marry Francis, he was acting against his mother's wishes, to which he was extremely sensitive. His decision to become a Catholic had to be made alone. He had the sympathy of his wife— but not her companionship. In the decision to edit the paper, he had not even her full sympathy. She always felt his creative work to be so much more important, and to be imperiled by the overwork the paper brought. Gilbert was a man slow in action, but it would be exceedingly difficult to find instances of his doing anything that he did not want to do. The theorists about marriage are like the theorists about moving house, if they do not know that decisions made by one party alone are rare indeed, and stick out like spikes in the life of a normal and happy couple. Of the vast majority of decisions, it is hard to say who makes them. They make themselves, after endless talk, on the tops of omnibuses going to Hanwell or elsewhere, out walking, breakfasting, especially breakfasting in bed, they make themselves, above all in the matter of a move, in fine weather, during a holiday, on a hot London Sunday, when a flat is stuffy, when the telephone rings all day, when a book is on the stocks. Other writers have left London that they might create at leisure and choose their own times for social intercourse. Why does no one say their wives dragged them away? Simply, I think, that being less kind and considerate than Gilbert, they do not mind telling their friends that they are not always wanted. This Gilbert could not do. If people said how they would miss him, how they hated his going, he would murmur vague and friendly sounds, from which they deduced all they wanted to deduce. Was it more weakness or strength 
that tenderness of heart that could never faintly suggest to his friends that they would miss him more than he would miss them i never wanted but one thing in my life he had written to annie Furman, and that one thing he was taking with him anyhow the move accomplished he enjoyed defending it in every detail and did so especially in his daily news articles the rush to the country was not uncommon in the literary world of the moment and his journalist friends had urged the point that beaconsfield was not true country was suburban was being overbuilt his friends g k replied were suffering from a weak-minded swing from one extreme to the other men who had praised london as the only place to live in were now vying with one another to live furthest from a station to have no chimneys visible on the most distant horizon to depend on tradesmen who only called once a week from cities so distant that fresh-baked loaves grew stale before delivery rival ruralists would quarrel about which had the most completely inconvenient postal service and there were many jealous heart-burnings if one friend found out any uncomfortable situation which the other friend had thoughtlessly overlooked gilbert on the contrary noted soon after his arrival that beaconsfield was beginning to be built over and he noted it with satisfaction within a stone's throw of my house they are building another house i am glad they are building it and i am glad it is within a stone's throw he did not want a desert he did not want a large landed estate he wanted what he had got a house and a garden he adventurously explored that garden finding a kitchen garden that had somehow got attached to the premises and wondering why he liked it speaking to the gardener an enterprise of no little valour and asking him the name of a strange dark red rose at once theatrical and sulky which turned out to be called victor hugo watching with regret a lot of little black pigs being turned out of my garden watching the neighbouring house grow up from its foundation he noted in an article called the wings of stone what was the reality of a staircase we pad them with carpets and rail them with banisters yet every staircase is truly only an awful and naked ladder running up into the infinite to a deadly height a correspondent pointed out in a letter to the daily news that here he had touched a reality keenly felt by primitive peoples when sitawayo king of zululand visited london he would go upstairs only on hands and knees and that with manifest terror the paddings of civilization may be useful yet gilbert held more valuable a realization of the realities of things vision is not fancy but the sight of truth in the notebook he had written there are three things that make me think things beyond all poetry a yellow space or rift in evening sky a chimney or pinnacle high in the air and a path over a hill chesterton had always the power of conveying in words a painter's vision of some unforgettable scene with the poet's words for what the artist not only sees but imagines such flashes became more frequent as he looked through the doorway of his little house go through the ball and the cross with this in mind and you will see what i mean 
the crimson seas of the sunset seemed to him like a bursting out of some sacred blood, as if the heart of the world had broken. There is nothing more beautiful than thus to look, as it were, through the archway of a house, as if the open air were an interior chamber, and the sun a secret lamp of the place. Best of all, to illustrate this special quality, is a longer passage, from the poets and the lunatics. For the most part, he was contented to see the green semicircles of lawn repeat themselves like a pattern of green moons. For he was not one to whom repetition was merely monotony. Only in looking over a particular gate, at a particular lawn, he became pleasantly conscious, or half-conscious, of a new note of color in the greenness, a much bluer green, which seemed to change to vivid blue, as the object at which he was gazing moved sharply, turning a small head on a long neck. It was a peacock. But he had thought of a thousand things before he thought of the obvious thing. The burning blue of the plumage on the neck had reminded him of blue fire, and blue fire had reminded him of some dark fantasy about blue devils, before he had fully realized even that it was a peacock he was staring at. And the tail, that trailing tapestry of eyes, had led his wandering wits away to those dark but divine monsters of the apocalypse, whose eyes were multiplied like their wings, before he had remembered that a peacock, even in a more practical sense, was an odd thing to see in so ordinary a setting. Yet always to Chesterton the beauty of nature was enhanced by the work of men. And if in London men had swarmed too closely, it was not to get away from them, but to appreciate them more individually that he chose the country. Yes, his literary friends would say, in the real country that is true. The farmer, the laborer, even the village barber and the village tradesman are worth knowing, but not suburban neighbors. Against such discrimination, the whole democracy of Chesterton stood in revolt. All men were valuable. All men were interesting. The doctor as much as the barber. The clergyman as much as the farmer. All men were children of God and citizens of the world. If he had a choice in the matter, it was discrimination against the literary world itself, with all the fads that tended to smother its essential humanity. Nothing would have induced him to discriminate against the suburban. In the last year of his life, he wrote in the autobiography, I have lived in Beaconsfield from the time when it was almost a village, to the time when, as the enemy profanely says, it is a suburb. For the author of The Napoleon of Notting Hill, this would hardly be a conclusive argument against any place. We should, he once said, regard the important suburbs as ancient cities, embedded in a sort of boiling lava, spouted up by that volcano, the speculative builder. That lava itself he found interesting. But beneath, or beside it, a little town like Beaconsfield had its share in the great sweep of English history. Something of the seven sunken Englands could be found in the old town, which custom marked off pretty sharply from the new town. Burke had lived in Beaconsfield, and was buried there. And Gilbert once suggested to Mr. Garvin that they should appear at a local festival 
respectively as fox, a part for which I have no claim, except in circumference, and Burke. I admire Burke in many things, while disagreeing with him in nearly everything. But Mr. Garvin strikes me as being rather like Burke. At the barber's, he was often seen sitting at the end of a line, patiently awaiting his turn, for he could never shave himself, and it was only years later that Dorothy Collins conceived and put into execution the bold project of bringing the barber to the house. Probably an article would be shaping while he waited, and the barber's conversation might put the finishing touches to it. There were in fact two barbers, one of the old town, one of the new. I once planned, he says, a massive and exhaustive sociological work in several volumes, which was to be called The Two Barbers of Beaconsfield, and based entirely upon the talk of the two excellent citizens to whom I went to get shaved. For those two shops do indeed belong to two different civilizations. Despite his love for London, Gilbert had always felt that life in a country town held one point of special superiority. In it you discovered the community. In London you chose your friends, which meant that you narrowed your life to people of one kind. He had noted in the family itself a valuable widening. The supreme adventure is being born. There we do walk suddenly into a splendid and startling trap. There we do see something, of which we have not dreamed before. Our father and mother do lie in wait for us, and leap out on us, like brigands from a bush. Our uncle is a surprise. Our aunt is in the beautiful common expression, a bolt from the blue. When we step into the family, by the act of being born, we do step into a world which is incalculable, into a world which has its own strange laws, into a world which could do without us, into a world that we have not made. Here in Beaconsfield, the Chestertons grew into the community. The clergyman, the doctor, the innkeeper, the barber, the gardener. And like the relatives who spring upon you at birth, these worthy citizens seemed to Gilbert potentials of vast excitement and varied interest. Discussing an event of much later date, a meeting to decide whether a crucifix might be erected as a local war memorial, he thus describes the immense forces he found in that small place. Those who debated the matter were a little group of the inhabitants of a little country town, the rector and the doctor and the bank manager and the respectable tradesmen of the place, with a few hangers-on, like myself, of the more disreputable professions, of journalism or the arts. But the powers that were present there in the spirit came out of all the ages— and all the battlefields of history. Mahomet was there, and the iconoclasts, who came riding out of the east to ruin the statues of Italy, and Calvin and Rousseau, and the Russian anarchs, and all the older England that is buried under Puritanism, and Henry III, ordering the little images for Westminster, and Henry V, after Agincourt, on his knees before the shrines of Paris. If one could really write that little story, of that little place, it would be the greatest of historical monographs. End of chapter 15, part 1. Read by Candace Tuttle.